Welcome to episode 154 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Okay, welcome back to another episode. Um, I have a tip that's kind of a follow-up from last week and will tie into our uh, interview today, too. So last week I talked about uh, self-advocacy and teaching our kids how to advocate for themselves. And this week I wanted to add the tip of making sure we're advocating for ourselves, whether it be something small like saying this week I had to say, I might have to leave a session to let in the repairman mm-hmm. because it's 96 degrees and my air conditioning <laughs> broke. <laughs> or something bigger, you know, saying that I don't have time to complete these progress reports. I need, you know, a day built into my schedule to do them. I need more pay. Uh, in, you know, I'm not going past contract hours to do these. I need a day time to do them. Or it can be something that's, you know, more harder and serious, like, the thing I've been doing after almost every school shooting, but I've lost track of them, which is writing my um, my senator, my senators and my representatives and making sure that they know that I am tired of seeing, being worried about my students that are at schools, my own kids that are at schools, my husbands that are at schools, and mm-hmm. that something needs to be done about it. So I think we can still use that same framework that I'm teaching my kids of stating the problem, stating what we've tried to do to fix it, and stating what we need them to help with. So just think about that, that our kids are not the only ones that need to be advocated for. Sometimes we need to advocate for ourselves too. And yeah, and our spouses who are in those situations, our other loved ones who work in schools. And we've got to do something differently. uh, Hopefully things are getting to a point now that People are recognizing that we can't go on with gun violence being the number one cause of childhood deaths in the country. Right. We are the greatest country in the world. And why do we accept that? Yep. Yep. And it's it's the definition of insanity to keep on doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Or doing very little and expecting something to change. And then just... Blaming it on, oh, we need more mental health. Well, yes, we do need more mental health care. No one is arguing that. But we have to do something about weapons of war that are so easily available. Right. Period. Yep. Yep. So we've got to do something. Yep. And I know that it seems, I don't know, it's one of those things where it seems small to do something like write a letter. Um, But I have this, I have this little phrase that's on the wall in my house, which is funny because it doesn't work so well where I live now. But it's still on the wall in my house of um, a snowflake is one of the most fragile things in the world. Mm -hmm. But look at what they can do when they stick together. So it's the just doing that one little thing that you can do and that it can make a difference. I got a letter back from one of my senators this week. I know it was a form letter, but it still addressed the fact that I had talked talked to and contacted him about gun violence in schools and what he was going to do about it. So um, I know that, you know, someone sees it, someone hears it, and that it can make a difference. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we've got to figure out how we can each do our part. Yep. And and hopefully and I'm going to say it elect people 
that want to do something about it and leave it at that. Yeah. Okay. So on the podcast, we have we have someone who's very familiar with this topic. Yes. So we have um, the, as she's known on Instagram, the PTSD SLP, uh, and it is Rachel Archambo. And she is going to talk to us about um, some of her experiences in this area of a, being at a school when a school shooting happened, and now everything that she's doing to help other SLPs be um, trauma-informed therapists. Hi, it's Todd Houston. I'm a co-host of Telepractice Today with my dear friend, Kim Allen. And I just wanted to take a moment and ask you a favor. You see, we at the 3C Digital Media Network, yes, and I am also the CEO of 3C, as we call it, we need you. We need you to... Maybe develop a webinar that we could distribute for you. Or maybe it's a course that you have in mind that you'd like to share your knowledge and skills. We would want to do that with you. We can help you distribute, produce, and distribute all of those things. We have blogs that you could do. Maybe you want to start in this whole wild world of online publishing and online media, and you want to start with a blog, we would be very happy to host that blog on our website. So if you have some ideas about blogging or a webinar or maybe a course that you'd like to offer, or maybe you have an idea for a totally new podcast, you may not know this, but we actually produce five podcasts and it's growing. And so, who knows? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. We would love to talk to you. In fact, I would love to talk to you. I would love to showcase what you're doing, your knowledge and skills, no matter what it might look like. Course, webinar, podcast, blog, doesn't really matter. You can reach out to me at Todd at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com. That's T-O-D-D at the number 3, 3C, C as in cat, digitalmedianetwork.com. And I will be in touch. Thank you for considering this. And we'll talk soon. Hey, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got started in this field of speech language pathology. So the way that I got into it, I think is a bit unusual um, in that I've been telling everyone I'm going to be a speech pathologist since I was in fourth grade uh, because I have two younger brothers. They're less than two years younger than me and they're twins. They had basically every strike against them for having speech concerns um, as babies. And um, we had a private speech pathologist come to the house when they were growing up. And I notoriously have a sweet tooth. And I would see her using candy to help them make certain sounds and everything. And I would try to fake having, you know, speech problems so that I could come sit at the table and have a fruit roll up or, you know, have a lollipop or whatever it was. Um, 
so when people started asking me in like middle school, like, oh, what do you want to be? And I started saying speech pathologist, adults would praise me nonstop that it would be like, what middle schooler is going around telling people she's going to be a speech pathologist. (laughs) Right. Um, And then I didn't stop saying that. And when it came time to pick a major, like in high school, going to freshman year, I chose speech and I just went all the way through. I did undergrad, I did grad school and came out a speech pathologist. And um, yeah, I never had another way of, you know, I didn't pick this career. There were some other things that I was like, oh, maybe I'd like that career, but I never changed my mind. It was just, I'm going to be a speech pathologist and that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. It's so interesting. My my daughter was similar in that when she was about in the seventh or eighth grade, she decided she was going to be a nurse. And that's the only thing mm-hmm. she ever talked about. And that's what she is. She went that's to, awesome. You know, through high school, through college. And that's, you know, she's in, you know, graduated nursing. And that's what she wants to do. That's what she did. So my son, a little different. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Never mind about that. Uh, he's he's taking the the longer route the long, around the, the scenic around. the scenic route. Yes, but uh, he'll he'll get there. Uh, you have to remember but, to be nice about Jordan because he uh, edits he's the always podcast nice to Jordan. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jordan. Yeah, Jordan. <laughs> we're always nice to Jordan. Jordan, we throw him food down in the basement, and he yeah. eats every now and again, and we keep him alive. He's fine. I love it. Great. No, he's doing great. Um, so you knew from a very young age you wanted to do this, and and so let's let's talk about your career. And I know that you are embarking upon uh, developing a very specific point of view, so to speak, or a speci- yeah. sp- very specific area of the field that you want to discuss more. So let's start with sort of how you came to that. Sure. So I graduated from grad school, May 2016. I came home. I, you know, was applying for jobs and I initially wanted uh, an adult medical placement, but some people know how difficult it is after getting out of grad school to get a medical placement, especially if you're moving areas or something that they're, they want you to have the license right away. They want you to provide them that documentation. It's like, well, you need to hire me first and then I can. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was hard for me to get into the medical setting down here. So I joined a contract company and they set me up in a school for my CF and the school that I was placed at was actually my rival high school growing up. Mm. Um, so I got placed in the County that I grew up in, uh, ended up at my rival school, which was a high school. And, um, I was there from, August 2016 to October 2021. And in February 2018, so I just gotten done with my CF, was that next year of being a full CCCSLP, um, I experienced a traumatic event at work, uh, a nationally publicized traumatic event, um, which was a school shooting. And since then, I have spent the last five years now, it's been five years since that happened, Mm -hmm. um, learning about trauma-informed care. I initially found it trying to figure out how I could work with my students that had just undergone trauma, myself, who had Mm -hmm. undergone trauma, my community, the staff, everyone. Mm -hmm. And I had a really hard time justifying why it wasn't 
important to work on a 12th grader's ability to say R when they didn't feel safe on campus and I didn't feel safe on campus. And um, that's what brought me into trauma-informed care. And I, over these past five years, I've been delving more and more into it, seeing how our fields as speech pathologists have it in their scope to be trauma-informed practitioners, caregivers. Um, and it, it's changed the way that I do therapy. It's changed the way that I am in my personal life, in my friendships, my relationships, everything. It's just been a mindset shift. Hmm. So let's talk about that. So so what is the mindset shift? So, how, so you approach... Sure everyone a little bit differently than you did before. I, yes, I, so I really call it a mindset shift. It's like a lifestyle change, but the the gist of it would be instead of looking at someone and saying, what's wrong with you? We say, what happened to you? Mm. And especially in our field as SLPs, we are constantly looking at behaviors and we're trying to pathologize them, right? We're trying to say, oh, that's a kid with autism. Like that's a kid with ADHD. And Mm -hmm. in my brain, I I have to stop myself from saying those things. Even though we work with them over the years and we are pretty good at identifying them, we have to turn off that side of our brain and say, what is going on here? What is this behavior trying to show me? Could this be trauma? Because when you look at all these diagnoses, autism, ADHD, Mm -hmm. it actually looks a lot like a trauma response. So when we have a student in front of us who is so distracted, that's looking around, that can't sit down, that's shaking their leg, that's, you know, picking their hands you could say, oh my gosh, that kid is such an ADHD typical kid. But in my mind, I'm like, is he dysregulated? Is this child in a trauma response? Are they triggered by something? Do they feel safe in here? And that's my whole position is how can I support um, and not be, our job is not to be a, a therapist, but there are things that therapists do that we can implement in speech that help us support our clients. And mm-hmm. that's my goal. So, so this has been, <laughs> I feel like I've needed this more than any other year that I've worked in my entire career. Yes. I have kids that um, this year that have had death of a parent, yep. have ha- been drug addicted, have, um, I have one kid that he had four members of his family pass away in the past year yep. and has expressed suicidal ideation. And it's been a rough year. And I, I think my hardest thing is walking into that room and knowing that I've got to work on this stuff. Like I like, you know, I have to track the data. I've got to get these goals met. Like I'm mandated to do that, but some days I don't want to, and they don't want to. And how do I balance those two of, you know, sitting and talking about like, how was your day? Are you doing okay? Versus, or if they're too little to do that, be like, let's just play today versus like, Hey, let's see how many times we can say L. So how how do you balance that? It's, it's so hard and it's so individualized. I get that question all the time and you're not alone with saying that I need it more than ever now, especially coming out of the pandemic. That's where trauma informed care is is such a needed thing that people are like, uh, they're acknowledging the mental health struggles, especially of their clients, of themselves. Um, And it's exactly that of 
how do I balance being the one that's collecting data and how do I humanize things? And one of the suggestions that I give is to humanize therapy. So, and let them lead, lead, Mm -hmm. let the client lead no matter what age. So when you when a student comes in, a child comes in, a client of whatever age, they're acting a little bit differently. When I'm saying that we're not therapists, we're not sitting them down and saying, tell me what's going on in your life, you know, um, expecting that to be where they vent. You can offer, hey, I just notice that you're a, you seem a little bit down today or I notice your behavior is a little bit different. I just want to let you know if you want to talk about anything, I'm here. And that way it gives them choice. So one of the things that I'm very passionate about is the six pillars of trauma-informed care, which are safety, trustworthiness and transparency, peer support, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment, voice and choice, and then understanding cultural, historical and gender issues. So choice is a big one of of those pillars. So by giving the client choice, whether it's participating, I know we have that data collection, they can still choose what they are participating in, um, how they're going to participate. Uh, The collaboration between you and the client, it's what are we gonna do today? How are we going to target these goals? Do you need a minute to regulate yourself? How can we regulate together? Um, But it's really hard to have these limits that say Medicaid, Medicare says you need to be taking data all this time. And that is the biggest question that SLPs give me is because they are so stressed by the constraints of whatever system they're working in, whether it's 90% productivity in acute care setting, that they're like, how how do I have a conversation with someone if I like just need to be giving therapy and then doing an evaluation? You can do it during your data collection. You You can do it at the same time by humanizing it, by offering these, you provide better sessions. Um, you build a relationship which will contribute to better sessions in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's individualized. It depends what's going on. It depends how the person is going to engage with you. Um, but offering safety, um, and that's safety, emotional safety, physical safety, as much as you can within the session. And so my follow-up question is, do you think that there's any barriers in telepractice to providing that that sense of safety and that sense of connection? And what do we do to overcome them? So I think there's the physical, mm-hmm. the physical boundary, right. Right. Um, which uh, sometimes I say w- when I'm doing these presentations, I talk about how we need to know what um, attachment styles are. Uh, for children, for adults, um, we need to know love languages. So some children, you know, are so, you know, physically touchy that they're right mm-hmm. next to you and they're rubbing your arm hair. Um, that is a barrier for those of you doing teletherapy that you don't, mm-hmm. you can't see how they are comforted. If you see their hands and everything, are they picking at them? Is there something that they're doing physically? That's not this little box that I just see your face. Yeah, that mm-hmm. That is the hard part. But you can still offer those questions and it's the mindset shift. So I was thinking about this before coming on with you both about whether you are a teletherapist doing teletherapy in a school that your the the students that you're seeing are in a school. Maybe they don't have an SLP in person, but you're providing yeah. te- uh, teletherapy for them. 
you have to be constantly thinking what's going on in their world. What could possibly be going on there? It's the same as if you were doing teletherapy with a student that is just one-on-one in the house. Why are they doing teletherapy? Why is this the easiest modality for them? Uh, what trauma could be taking place um, or have put them into this position to have teletherapy versus in person? Or what are their parents going through? Maybe it's a, a, a child that is so physically violent that no one in person will take them, but maybe over teletherapy, that's a good medium that they're not able to physically touch someone. So my, my first teletherapy job was in a um, juvenile detention center. So it was, it was the better fit for that setting to have someone on the computer and not having to come in to the, the environment. Absolutely. And you can even go a step further of if you did not take teletherapy, there might be another teletherapist that might be willing to come in there, but maybe they've been without a therapist for a long time. And these are children that by IEP need services. They are legally supposed to be having services. And by going without those services, what other trauma has been happening in that time. Are they able to express themselves? Did they get in trouble with a cop that they're not able to express themselves? Does the person that arrested them not know that they might have a learning disability? They're not understanding the directions. It's all these things that you need to take into account of what, why is your client here? What else is going on in their life? And when we credit something to a behavior of saying that's a bad kid or that's a, this type of kid, we're not thinking about what else is going on. And that is the, that's the mindset shift is that we just need to be considering at all times. What else is this showing me? What else is this behavior showing me? Mm-hmm. It's so powerful. I'm just sort of all these <laughs> questions going around in my brain. So how, how do we define PTSD? So Let's talk about that. It's a good question. So I, I am an adult diagnosed diagnosed, late diagnosed with ADHD. I think I had it my entire childhood. And then before I got diagnosed with ADHD, I was diagnosed with PTSD right after this event was a a month after. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason, so PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. We most commonly hear this relating to veterans, military veterans, um, because that's where most of the studies were occurring was shell shock. And that's, you know, it's existed forever, but it was called different names of why are they acting this way? So a lot of in the community of trauma, people say that the D and PTSD doesn't really apply because the disorder part, it it's, completely appropriate for what they've been through. Basically, PTSD mm-hmm. is your mind taking everything as a threat. It's mm-hmm. not able to yeah. regulate. It's not able to calm down. So when you experienced trauma and you're walking throughout the world and your mind is constantly on survival mode, you're taking everything as a threat. Um, so you might come mm-hmm. across a student that has PTSD or myself that has PTSD And what that means is just when I hear a loud noise, um, I'm not ducking below a desk or anything in -hmm. in cover. It's that my body actually goes into freeze. So we typically hear fight, flight, freeze. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's another one, fawn, which is people pleasing. 
my, my trauma response is freeze. So what happens when something scares me is I stand very still. My face is just numb. Um, it looks like I'm very tired kind of, and I'm assessing the situation. I'm frozen to be like, all right, that sound was this. My eyes are scanning the room to make sure that I'm safe. Once my body feels safe and my mind feels safe and going to therapy for the past five years and acknowledging, I know what my triggers are. Um, Mm -hmm. I know what my coping strategies are. So I can typically just take a couple breaths. I, once I feel safe, I'm able to regulate myself and go back to a window of tolerance that I'm able to go on with my life. The PTSD mm-hmm. part is when you're constantly in dysregulated mode and you can't mm-hmm. bring yourself down to, to regulate it. So PTSD can look different for everyone, different ages. Um, and then there's also CPTSD, which is complex, which mm-hmm is more about the frequency and complexity of the trauma if it happens consistently. So usually domestic abuse would be in in that. Um, But it's all how your brain is responding to a stressful situation. Right. I like that. Almost, it's almost changing the D in it to response instead of disorder. It's a response. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Traumatic event. Yes, definitely. That's, that is, um, I think that, mindset is being led by veterans that are like this this makes sense for what we've been through the right. disorder doesn't make sense our brain has m- made changes to keep us safe mm-hmm. right. so it's a really interesting concept and I- i'm glad it's being brought up and um i i also try to tell people what's interesting working in a high school we had rotc we had the little military classes and everything mm-hmm. So after the year after everything happened, we had a lot of staff members leave. Mm-hmm. We had a new um, military. We had a teacher come in who was teaching ROTC. The previous ones left. And I'm not kidding you. He, he told me, he said, I left a war zone to work at a school. I've had enough. Uh, the new guy mm-hmm. that came in, we were having a training our first week back at school. And he raised his hand in a training when we were, you know, trying to work with students that had trauma. He raises his hand and he's like, now, how do I know who has PTSD? And I understand from a military perspective that he's looking for that official stamp on the paper that right, mm-hmm. right. That there's this diagnosis. This is how we deal with that. Mm-hmm. I went up to him after and knowing what I know about trauma informed care, trauma is different for everyone. There's many people who are at the school that were traumatized by the same thing. There's a few people at the school that say it wasn't traumatic to them at all. And that's due to where they were located based on the support they have. I told him, you need to treat everyone at this school as though they have experienced trauma. Throw out the PTSD thing Mm -hmm. because that was so um, clinical. It was so, you know, putting people in a box that I'm going to treat everyone one way that has PTSD. I'm going to treat everyone the other way when we know everyone here has undergone the same event. So we can do the same thing for everyone and not have to put people in boxes and treat them differently. Let's treat everyone the same as though that they all have experienced trauma. Right. And, and when you say that, like, I feel like we can almost assume that any kid that's walking into our door, just by 
the nature of having dealing with a disability. Yes. Being in mm-hmm. the public school system, everything that's going on yes. lately is that we can kind of assume that they've experienced trauma. Would you say that that's correct? Absolutely. And it's it's best to assume. It's best to assume that it's a happy little, oh yeah, you have not experienced trauma or the opposite way, we shouldn't have to know what someone has gone through in order to be more trauma-informed for them. There are certain things that we can do. Like, for example, my school, you know exactly what happened to me. So one thing that I talk about is the use of violent language. So at school for four years, there were certain phrases that I had not heard, we didn't use, that are very common in the everyday language. So when I started my new position in the same district, um, October 2021, One of those phrases was, shoot me a text, shoot me an email. And I was like, wow, I haven't heard that in a while. It Mm -hmm. didn't put me into a PTSD tailspin, but Mm -hmm. using that on campus was inappropriate. That there Mm -hmm. were certain phrases that were related to violent language that Mm -hmm. we automatically, no one taught us this. It was just something that we had erased from our language because it it didn't seem appropriate Mm -hmm. on campus. So I eliminate that from my vocabulary to every single person. Now that I'm not on that campus, that is a weird little control group. I still remove my violent language because the reality is when I'm sitting in a class of 30 kindergartners, I don't know what they have gone through. Mm -hmm. Does it help me to know that one of them has, you know, had this traumatic event? Maybe I can alter it a bit more for them. Yes. But ultimately, the group that I have in front of me, if I if I change my language a little bit, I can reduce the risk of harm. And that is our goal as speech language pathologists is being trauma informed will help us reduce the risk of unintentional and intentional harm to our clients. That is our goal. It's it's sort of like we don't know what is a trigger for each person. We can never know. never know some of that. Right. Some of them are so, you know, um, out there. Um, mm-hmm. when I think, so my event was on Valentine's day. So mm-hmm. Valentine's day in my community is a trigger red and pink mm-hmm. balloons, candy. Um, the second that Christmas is over the next day, mm-hmm. if you walk into a target, they go from Christmas decorations mm-hmm. To Valentine's Day the next day. And when I've asked my other friends about that, they go, no, that's not possible. That doesn't happen. But our community that experienced that event, Mm -hmm. we know it so intimately because we are triggered by it when we walk into a dollar store, when we walk Mm -hmm. into uh, any store that had that shift, we notice it first. Um, And a trigger, it's used way too much in the general dialect, right? We use it. Oh, I'm triggered by this. I'm triggered by this. But a trigger just really is how you react to a moment of stress. How, what, what triggers your stressful moment? Um, so you can't know you, it's impossible to know everyone's triggers. There are consistent ones that might trigger some people. So for our school, we knew that, uh, fire alarms, we could not ring the fire alarms for the four years that those students were on campus because that, put everyone into a tailspin. We would go, you know, we would have PTSD. We would have triggers from that. Um, That was a way to remove that. But in the general public, we can't say, oh, that person is triggered by this. That person is triggered by this. Uh, One of my favorite books that I recommend to everyone, uh, 
that's interested in trauma-informed care is What Happened to You by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah. Mm. One of the chapters that really spoke to me was Dr. Bruce Perry is a super well-known child trauma specialist. And he was working with a student that was working with a teacher that every time the teacher came in the room, the student would just not be able to, would be extremely triggered. When the Dr. Bruce Perry met with the father, the father was wearing Axe body spray. And when the doctor got closer to him, the doctor smelled or the, uh, the parents smelled like alcohol. And he realized that the Axe body spray was to cover up the scent of alcohol. Yeah. When he met with the teacher, he realized that he had the same body spray. So that was the trigger for the student. And what is our, what is the trauma informed move at that point is that that teacher on the days he see the, sees the student cannot wear that body spray, should not wear that body spray. You could be the person that says he's going to have to get used to it. Or you can say, am I causing harm? Am I in- unintentionally or intentionally hurting this child? Does he associate the smell with a negative response? It's all something that you have to take into consideration, but the trauma-informed move is once knowing the trauma, what are you going to do to change that, change yourself to help? Right. It's almost like we need a, I'm just thinking about this, we need a different word aside from trigger because a trigger is on a gun. Is a violent word. So yes, yes. So one of the suggestions, and it is used in many areas, is called a cue. So instead of trigger, is cue. Unfortunately, the medical language has not caught up to that yet. They are not replacing that in the DSM. They're not, you know, Mm -hmm. they're not, they're not changing that. So when you talk about it in certain areas, they're like, "What? What is a cue?" Um, So I use it interchangeably. And I think because of how stigmatized the word trigger is, because Mm -hmm. it's used so often, I think we're going to have to move to cue a bit Mm -hmm. sooner uh, in order to validate what people with trauma are going through, what a trigger or a cue is. But I think it's going to have to make that language switch a bit faster because of how often trigger is used and how inappropriately it is used. It is used very inappropriately now. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about um, fawning as a reaction. Yeah. Because uh, I have not heard that term. I've certainly heard of, you know, uh, fight, flight, or freeze. Mm-hmm. But then you you added fawning and trying to yeah. please the person. So it's almost like, and, get, and correct me if I'm wrong, if the person who is who's experiencing the cue, who has, you know, trauma, is now apologizing because make, they've made someone else feel uncomfortable. Yes. 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 And it also comes from if you're uh, have an abusive parent or an abusive Mm. spouse, um, it's a way to placate them from being Mm -hmm. you don't want to set them off. It's just what can you do to be what they want you to be? So the fawning ends up crossing that to any authority figure. It's not just the abuser. It's any teacher, any person that treats them wrong. It's I have to make myself small. I have to go with it. I have to people please. So um, that that tends to come more from the abuse side and the CPTSD. Um, but we do see it. Um, 
And that's not to say that I don't bounce in between the four of them. Typically, my response is freeze. But have I been in that flight response before? And flight doesn't mean run away. It can. Absolutely. It can mean run away. But it can also mean fight, whether that's verbally or, you know, physically that I have to, (laughs) I have to run away. I have to um, yell at someone. It's. Yeah. Or avoid going in the first place. Like I'm, I'm fleeing before the event even happens. Yes. Well, there's avoidance as well. So from a trauma perspective, you, and this is what we have to think about in the schools, right? We see if you just get a paper of a kid that has 30 absences in three months, we go, Oh, truancy, you know, the parents aren't being supportive of this. Uh, we can put the, the blame anywhere we like. But then what happens when you find out that they were bullied so heavily at school or there was a traumatic event at school? We had this after what happened at the school that you could not get some of those kids to go back to the scene of the crime. Right. And is right. that valid? Absolutely. There were adults that were able to make that decision, right? They were able to say, you know what, see ya, I'm 38 mm-hmm. years in. I will not come back to school or it was their, you know, they're two mm-hmm. months in. They were able to make that decision. So we have to keep in mind that avoidance is how people cope with things. When you're going through trauma therapy, it's not the preferred method of coping because it's you're you're not facing what you need to. And some of that, if you're not if you're not able to walk into a grocery store anymore, now we have Instacart and whatever, but mm-hmm. are you going to be able to get food for yourself? Is that you know, right. are these maladaptive? Is this going to hinder you? You want to be able to go to all these places with coping strategies. That right. that's the goal of of therapy for trauma. Exactly. Oh, I'm unpacking so much here. <laughs> good, <laughs> I good. Think I, I think I need a, a counseling session now. <laughs> um, so something else that I think wouldn't have dawned on me until this year, um as much is is there some trauma that's related to just being on a computer at this point like having to do mm-hmm. an online meeting versus an in-person meeting something that's like left over from covid when we couldn't go out we couldn't meet with people either on this and i have seen it like people that like are like i never want to do telepractice again because it was so terrible during the pandemic and i had a student this year that we had to switch to just his um his in-person um special ed teacher taking over his language services because he hated computers so bad uh so is that something you've seen and how how do we overcome and deal with that So I haven't seen that so much. I've actually seen the opposite. And I think we as providers, as humans, as adults can experience trauma. We can experience trauma from work as well. So I actually see a big shift specifically in my district. I work in the sixth largest district in the country that didn't use teletherapists. During COVID, we all became teletherapists. And then now we have contract companies with SLPs that are teletherapists. We even had some people that were in person that are now teletherapists. So even though they work next to the school, they work for our districts. And in my head, as a trauma-informed person, I go, what happened to them that they now are teletherapists? And we had a shooting in our district. That is one thing that people are like, you know what? I don't want to be in a school. I feel much safer at home. Or I think of coming out of COVID, We had a lot of people have babies, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people that 
do not feel comfortable going back into school, especially with the masks not being used anymore, that they don't feel safe. And there's trauma from COVID. There's, there's, I definitely had PTSD from, Mm -hmm. I just had COVID for my third time, unfortunately, like Mm -hmm. two weeks ago. Um, But after my first bout with it, I had long haulers for eight months. So I Mm -hmm. had this extreme fear of germs, of getting sick in any way. I was scared to go back to not being able to breathe and to walk. And I think all of these concerns are valid. Whatever method that people are using, we can't be like, oh, teletherapy is a lazy way of going about things. And when I see it now, I say, "What, what is happening that is making you choose this, that you are not going to have the social component, that you are, you know, sitting at home by yourself or are you doing childcare because you have financial concerns at home that maybe your partner lost their job or or something. I'm constantly thinking about why is this a decision? I'm everything, every, everything that I have to look at, I'm constantly, what is happening here? Why is this? What's, what's the underlying reason? Yeah. 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 And it's exhausting. Like I could Mm -hmm. look at anything and I start going, why, why, why? Mm-hmm. But but realistically, we need to, especially as providers, we have to be thinking about the why for this because we do experience trauma too. And it's completely valid for people, you know, there's such shame for, especially in my district, for someone to be like, you know what, I'm not going to be in the schools anymore. I don't feel safe. I'm going to work from home. I'm going to do teletherapy. Um, and there's a power imbalance also that the in-person SLPs have to do the evaluations, the teletherapists are not able to do evaluations. So then the evaluations end up being on the shoulders of the in-person therapists. So, and then the teletherapists are making almost the same amount as we are. So it's pitted the SLPs against each other. And when I hear Mm -hmm. that, oh, you know, they're lazy, they're at home, I'm constantly thinking of what what had them make this decision? If they went into the field of speech pathology, they want to be around people. They want to be around kids. They want to be working in the classrooms. Why are they choosing this option? I actually love teletherapy. I, I don't need the social component. I'm such an introvert. I don't know why I chose speech. I don't know why I became a public public speaker. I, I would love to do teletherapy. And I, um, I think that we are all burnt out from having the forced teletherapy, mm-hmm. right, you know? Right. Um, and it sent some people into early retirement that they're like, you know what? This is too much for me. I'm not going to be able I'm to done. learn this. I'm done. Right. And that's totally valid too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's, you always have to be considering what else is going on. Why is someone choosing this? And that's yeah. what we have to do as SLPs, as humans, as coworkers, we always have to understand what else is going on right and I think too like not thinking that as like why did they make that decision as in like it was a bad decision or anything like that it's almost like why does this fit for them right now yes whether it be whether it be the therapist whether it be the child whether it be the school district why does that fit for them right now and keep on questioning ourselves of does it continue to fit with you know that therapist that client that school district as well Right. And uh, the job that I'm in now, so I'm in a speech program specialist. So I have 40 schools that I support and there's, there's seven of us in this profession in in this job in my County. So I can't tell you how many times at the beginning of the year when we're assigning SLPs, which we have schools with complete vacancies, we have no one at those schools. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when we were going into this and, and we had teletherapists, um, there were schools that said, you know what, this population can't do teletherapy. And that was the, the rooms that have paras. They're the rooms that have three teachers in them. That population can't handle it. But then the other school with all the gen ed kids is saying that population can't handle it. When Mm -hmm. at other schools in the same populations, I'm saying, I'm seeing it is able to be done at those schools. They're just saying that that is the lesser method. They believe that is the lesser method and it's not true that uh, we're able to have amazing therapy sessions in this one school. We're able to have amazing therapy sessions in this one school. It's the mindset of Mm -hmm. who can we help here? Who can, who would benefit from this? But they are not able to see that, especially right away. Right. So Rachel, let's talk about what you have planned, how you're, um, how you're sort of branding going through that process. And and so what do you want to do in terms of your mission to inform others and better train the SLPs as well as other professionals about trauma? Sure. So a year after everything happened, I needed a place to put all the resources that we were given. One of the benefits of what happened at my school is it was at such a national and international level. We were given supports that other schools, other communities were not given. So we had a lot of therapists. We had a lot of resources that were put out to us. Um, and then we had, uh, I, I was sent five other SLPs that had experienced the same trauma as me after, mm. in the year after. So I was like, I I don't want to make this very sad group chat of all of us that can, you know, commiserate on this. And what if it keeps happening? Who else is going to be added to this chat? So I made on Instagram the account PTSD SLP. And I started putting resources there. And it was a way for people to be able to send me who needed help. Um, And they could check out my, my experience with working with students with myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk about speech, uh, the trauma that we have, or as adults, what we, what we come across in trauma, um, different settings. I've worked in almost every setting a speech pathologist can work at. Um, so my goal right now is I want to be presenting for not only SLPs, for educators, um, for doctors, for anything in healthcare, education, HR, I don't care who you are because it can apply. Trauma-informed care needs to be in every job, every uh, in any area. Um, so I have a lot of presentations coming up. Um, a lot of universities have me coming out to, to their school, um, whether it's a professor having me speak to the undergrad or grad courses. Um, a lot of the graduate students are the ones that are sending me to the professors saying, mm-hmm. can you, can you have this girl speak? And can you learn from her? Um, whether <laughs> it's the department at a, at mm-hmm. a university that's saying, how can we be more trauma informed for our mm-hmm. students? Um, and then I'm developing the biggest thing that I have coming is I'm developing a six hour course for a university, uh, a workshop on tra- trauma informed care. I'm speaking at ASHA Connect, which is a school based conference over the summer. And I mm-hmm. have two presentations at ASHA in November. So I can't stop talking about trauma informed care. I need everyone to know about it because, especially after the last three years, we are acknowledging mental health 
concerns, we are seeing more of it stemming from that three-year period, and it is directly affecting us as speech pathologists, and we are still mm-hmm. under stress from that time. Um, so we need to be more trauma-informed, but um, I've got a website I'm building. I have the LLC that's come out. So it's it's a lot all at once, but I'm so happy that people are asking about mm-hmm. it. They want, they want to know how to be trauma informed wherever they are. And I think that's so helpful and it's going to make better clinicians, um, out of all of us and better humans, I hope too. <laughs> well, I think what you're doing is, is obviously very needed and I applaud all your efforts. Thank so you. I, and so how can people reach out to you? I know you have a Facebook, uh, group and our page. So how else? And you have the website coming? Yes. So the website is ptsdslp.com. It says under construction. I'm working on it right now. Um, I'm most active on Instagram, ptsd.slp. And I have the same page on Facebook. And then I also have a group on Facebook, which is PTSD Resources for SLPs. That's more of a uh, discussion forum kind of thing that if anyone mm-hmm. sees any any posts about trauma there they can feel free to post it there if they have a question of oh i have a student i'm not really sure it's all of our brains it's not just my brain that's that's trying to um help figure out the situation um and then i, I highly recommend that book i talked about earlier mm-hmm. what happened to you i think it's a great introduction and not too too heavy i know some people dive right into the book the body keeps the score and most of the people I know don't finish it because it's just so information heavy. It's about the brain and a lot. It's just, it's a lot. Um, so I think it's a better option for the other book. And it also has an audiobook version, which is very nice to listen to on your commute to work and everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I, I'm available all over the PTSD SLP universe and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty active on there and I, I love talking to people about, if they have an issue, if they have a question, if they want to know if I have a resource or a recommendation, I'd be happy to uh, talk to people. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast and uh, just best of luck with everything. This is wonderful. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that was Rachel Archambault. Really appreciate Rachel being with us. You may also know her as the PTSD SLP over on Instagram. Check out her resources. She is a powerhouse, and I admire what she's doing. She's really taking her own experiences and and transforming that into being a great resource for others and really educating all of us about uh, trauma-informed care and how to work with patients in a very different way, whether it's a child, a family, or an adult patient. Uh, So thank you, Rachel, for all that you're doing. Um, You you have a a real fan, two fans with Kim and I. And thank you guys for joining us on this episode of the podcast. We will be back again next week with another exciting episode. Until then, please leave us a five-star review. That helps us to attract those new listeners. And uh, with that, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.